0: Our guest today is Not Alonebeck, Assistant Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University. We'll be discussing your paper, "Alternative Venture Capital: The New Unicorn Investors," which is forthcoming in the Tennessee Law Review. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Not, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I wondered if before we really delve into this new paper, if we might set the stage a little bit. This paper is, of course, about alternative venture capital. But before we talk about alternative VC, I wondered if we could discuss traditional VC. How does traditional VC finance new high growth firms? How has it been regulated in the past? And how has that regulation been evolving of late?
1: Thank you so much. It's a great question. So, Traditionally emerging and fast growing businesses have been able to attract investment capital from traditional players, such as venture capital firms, right? So the other players in the early stages are angel investors, private family offices, but we're not going to concentrate on them. Really the main players let's focus on the VCs. And as you might know, VCs are associated with some of the most high growth influential firms in our economy today. For example, Let's look at the U.S., right? Alphabet, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. These are all firms that initially were VC-backed. So that's why so many in academia, whether it's in law, economics, or finance, that have articulated the strengths of the VC model. And let's talk about the VC model, especially about the corporate governance mechanism and the way that VCs invest and they are, are professional investors, They did it through stage financing, through contractual provisions. And particularly, their role is unique because they have an active role. They're involved as investors with their portfolio companies. And that is why over the last 30 years, really, the academic literature has focused on VCs as the main source of financing private startups. And as you might know, there's no agreed definition of what constitutes a VC fund And a VC firm is a type of investment vehicle that invests in startups. And what they do is that they are repeat players in the startup world. And they use unique contracts and organizational capabilities in order to overcome uncertainty, risk, information asymmetry, agency, lemon, and adverse selection related problems. And... Really, VC financing has prevailed since the early days of commercial activity, and it took on various forms. And what I want to put emphasize on there's two things that I want us to think about in our talk today, and that is, that I think predominantly they serve two functions: one is capital, and two oversight. Okay. VC investors are unique and distinct from other types of investors. They're different from, let's say, retail or institutional investors that invest in, for example, public companies. And that is because they are active investors. Again, they're not passive. They provide many value-added services to the companies that they invest in. And they also get credit for spurring more technological innovation than other investors. In terms of regulations, there have been several changes, okay? So first, we've seen changes in our securities laws, which facilitated the flow of more capital into private markets. Let me just illustrate that to you, okay? There are estimates, economists have been monitoring this, that between, for example, 2014 and 2016, over three quarters of the late stage VC funding came from now, non-traditional investors. Now, either through large funds or through direct investments, much of the capital from these late-stage investors has gone to unicorn firms. And again, I define unicorn firms as privately held firms with nominal valuation in excess of $1 billion. So until now, until the last few years, the access to investments in these Unicorn firms or other illiquid high risk privately held firms was reserved to accredited, sophisticated investors such as large institutions or ultra rich individuals. But this is changing. You have to understand this is changing and there are powerful industry groups that were able to recently successfully lobby our lawmakers to enable more Americans to access investments in private markets. And I also want to note one more thing. It's not just lobbyists, but there are other thought leaders and organizations and even independent research organizations, such as the Committee on Capital Markets Regulation. They have members from finance, business, law, accounting, and other academic communities. And they are expressing this concern. And the concern is that ordinary retail investors are missing out on this investment opportunity in private markets. Okay. Why? Because we're seeing this shift in the market. We're seeing that there's a decrease in the number of publicly listed firms. There's a decline in the volume of initial public offerings. And it's a fact that more money is being raised in private markets. It's a fact. And all these are, of course, contributing to the rise in the number of unicorn firms that we are observing. And so what you are saying is that it's not fair that mainly institutional investors or high net worth individuals are able to access these private markets and benefit from them. And they advocated for change and they managed, again, to convince our our regulators to act. Let me just quickly also tell you about some of these changes. So in the U.S., the SEC and the Department of Labor have promulgated new rules that are designed to protect investors while opening access to investment in private markets. For example, the SEC adopted amendments to facilitate capital formation and increased opportunities for investors by expanding access to capital for small and medium sized businesses and entrepreneurs across the United States. They also simplified, harmonized, and improved certain aspects of the exempt offering framework to promote capital formation while preserving or enhancing important investor protection. And just to also note. Previously, the SEC also revised and modernized the accredited investor framework. And what these changes are doing is they may encourage both sophisticated and non-accredited investors to invest in illiquid securities of high risk private ventures. And my concern is that this may also diminish the already limited investor protections in private markets. So. What's happening is that our entire securities regulatory scheme is centered on the concept of disclosure of information because we want to improve price discovery, efficiency, reduce information asymmetry, right? Without disclosure, non-accredited purchasers will not be able to make informed decisions, especially by the risks that are associated with investing in privately held firms. And these large investment firms, such as private equity funds, you know, are interested in gaining access to the individual investor market. And so what they're doing is they're lobbying, okay, and they're trying to have more access to, and as a result, also the Department of Labor announced recently in an information letter that 401k plan fiduciaries have the ability to invest in private equity funding. I want to know this announcement drew much criticism and media attention because there are many risks that are associated with investing in illiquid assets. And my question is who's monitoring these private fund investment advisors, right? And to illustrate, Just recently, the SEC issued a risk alert with regards to investigations and enforcement actions against private fund investment advisors on the lack of disclosure of potential conflicts of interest, excessive fees, and failures to implement policies on insider trading. And so what I'm doing in this article is I'm exploring some of these concerns.
0: With that background of traditional VC and the regulation of traditional VC in mind, I wondered if we could focus on the emergence of alternative venture capital or AVCs, as you refer to them in the paper. Who are AVCs? How is AVC different from traditional venture capital? And how does it change the economic and governance structures around investments in these high growth startups?
1: So what's happening is that I've learned that increasingly unicorn firms, right, again, these are the startups that are valued at more than $1 billion prior to an IPO, that they are able to access private markets and attract large amounts of investment capital from new, non-traditional, deep-pocketed investors. And you probably are asking, which investors, right? So for starters, we have institutional and high net worth investors, such as SoftBank, mutual funds, hedge funds, corporate venture capitalists, private equity, and sovereign wealth funds. And I call them alternative venture capital, ABC investors, because again, historically startups received much of their funding from traditional venture capital investors, right? But as I noted, this is all changing and we're witnessing this rise in deep pocketed ABC investors. They're re-engineering the competitive landscape of unicorn funding. And what's happening, and I want this to be really the takeaway here, is that rather than unicorn firms competing for a limited pool of funding, they are now able to attract a nearly limitless pool of funds, leaving the deep pockets to compete for the chance to invest.
0: Turning to this paper as a work of scholarship, I wondered if there are Any gaps in the literature that you've identified and perhaps that this paper fills? And if so, what did you find or what gaps have you filled?
1: Currently, retail investors, researchers and regulators don't have detailed information on the identity of these new ABC investors in our private markets, right? What are their incentives? What is their risk tolerance? What are the contractual terms for which they negotiate? or any other relevant data, which is needed to understand the new developments in our private markets, right? And this is what my article does. It fills this gap because until now, the coverage of what's happening has been very spotty. And so what I found is that these alternative venture capital investors are focused on financing unicorns because of their potential to disrupt the market, to transform entire industry, and add value to their portfolios. And some of these players even change their investment patterns. So instead of investing passively or indirectly through a VC fund, they now invest directly, okay? So these players used to invest indirectly through VCs. Now they're investing directly in these markets, okay? In some instances, ABCs are even outbidding traditional VC investors, okay? So what I found is that unicorn founders and ABC investors have common interests. Unicorn founders are interested in continuing to control their firm by remaining private longer, not subjecting themselves or their management decisions, trade secrets, or strategy to public market scrutiny. And so for the founders, for the unicorn founders, ABC is a new and very, very attractive path to allow early equity investors to exit by providing liquidity for shareholders that are locked in without requiring a more traditional trade sale or IPO. On the other hand, we have ABC investors. So why are ABC investors interested in investing in these unicorns? And as I noted in the beginning, we're witnessing these changes in our markets, right? So there has been changes to our securities laws. There's been a decline in IPOs. There's an extended period of low interest rates. And there are also a blend of financial and strategic incentives. And even geopolitical considerations, because think about it, private firms are under the radar, right? So if you invest in these firms, it's probably under less scrutiny than investing in public firms.
0: I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the distributional and governance effects of AVC as compared to traditional VC or public markets funding Whether that's for founders or early or public investors, employees or other stakeholders, what are some of those distributional or governance effects?
1: It's very interesting because actually my article advances the traditional corporate governance and entrepreneurship literature, which, as I stated, over the last 30 years, really mainly focused on VCs as the dominant source of financing startups. And that's not the case anymore. The U.S. regulatory landscape is changing in order to deal with the many developments that I outlined before. And my analysis sheds light on the ABC's ability and incentive to negotiate, for example, aggressive redemption rights, anti-delusion provisions, and basically influence corporate governance arrangements. And again, these corporate governance arrangements are very critical for monitoring unicorn managers right? And monitoring the actions of unicorn founders is very necessary to prevent misbehavior, such as rent-seeking, corruption, and other illegal activities. And we've seen several CEOs in the news lately, right? Facing different kinds of scandals. And what's happening, and to me it's a little alarming, is that the interest of these deep-pocketed market actors has reversed the competitive landscape of unicorn funding. Again, rather than unicorn firms competing for a limited pool of funding, unicorns are able to attract a nearly limitless pool of funds. Again, what's happening is this deep pockets are competing for the chance to invest And this reversal substantially alters the governance of uh, the unicorn firm and the nature of the relationships between unicorns and their investors, right? And it was even Matt Levine from Bloomberg. I love Matt Levine. I'm so happy that he's back to writing this column. He was spot on when he stated that private markets are the new public markets, And that firms are raising more money in private financing rounds than in public ones, okay? And so it's not surprising that we have retail investors who also want a piece of the action, right? They want to invest in private markets when private offerings are perceived as more lucrative than public markets despite the risks that are associated with these investments, okay? And what I want, I also want you to note, I'm going to give you a quick example just to illustrate some of these risks that I'm talking about, okay? So to me, moreover, and more importantly, unicorns are already flush with capital. They're able to attract large amounts of financing from ABCs. And what's happening is these ABCs, may bargain for different contractual rights than traditional VC investors when they invest in these unicorns. And those rights again, they include aggressive redemption rights and post IPO pricing ratchets. And these contractual mechanisms are designed to protect AVCs from down rounds and lower post IPO valuation. Now let's take WeWork as an example. Okay. WeWork illustrates the risks that are associated with ABC investment to investor protection generally, especially due to the conflict of interest between the various investors and unicorn firms that contribute to a moral hazard problem and mispricing of IPOs, okay? If you take a look at WeWork's S1 filings and the revised filings, right, there were a few with the SEC. You can see how AVC investors bargain for different contractual rights than traditional VC investors. WeWorks AVC investors obtain new contractual rights in order to protect their expected rate of return, okay, instead of monitoring rights. So they did not focus on the monitoring rights. And again, I told you, VCs, usually we expect them to do oversight monitoring. ABCs, different players, they're a different animal. And what they wanted to do is to protect their expected rate of return at the expense of other shareholders, including future shareholders. And so there are many scholars, especially finance scholars, for example, Josh Lerner at Harvard and others, they've been documenting the different contractual rights, for example, with regards to mutual funds, right? When mutual funds bargain for when investing in unicorns. And he showed that they... Bargain for aggressive redemption rights and pricing ratchets. And I want to note that mutual funds are not the only players. Other investors, they are considered to me as ABC investors, okay? And they also bargain for anti delusion protection. For example, SoftBank. SoftBank bargained for anti delusion provisions when SoftBank invested in WeWork, okay? It was actually Professor Coffey from Columbia. There was the first one to observe that and to report that SoftBank holds IPO ratchet clauses. And what it means is that there was difficulty with whether WeWork is going to be worth less. And, and as we know, the valuation was less, right? And also about the potential delusion that, and whether it was disclosed properly during this process, Okay. And what was written in prospectus, okay, and in the financial statements. And unfortunately, again, as noted by Professor Coffey, there was a cryptic disclosure that told the IPO investor very little about, for example, SoftBank's rights. And let me just quickly explain to the audience, if somebody doesn't know. So IPO ratchets, those are contractual rights. And what they do is they give investors uh, additional shares if the valuation following the IPO falls below the valuation before the IPO. And, and this is measured by the valuation in the last round of financing. And let me unpack this again. What it means is that in the event that the IPO price falls below the latest valuation prior to IPO, more shares are issued to this alternative investor that they negotiated for this right at the expense of any future public investor. And I used WeWork as an example to illustrate that investors can be left in the dark when it comes to the financing of unicorn firms. Because again, AVCs are different than VCs. And AVCs sometimes bargain for these provisions. And WeWork is not the only case, by the way. There are other companies, okay? I'm actually writing another paper on this, just comparing the contractual provisions between VCs and AVCs. So this is really... The initial paper, it does all the groundwork explaining to you about uh, the players, what they negotiate for, whether their incentives. And in my next paper, I'm just focusing on, on uh, contractual provision. Again, my premise is that we need a policy that ensures more disclosures, not less disclosures. Okay. Again, there's a moral hazard problem. When ABC investors have an incentive to continue to invest in late stage rounds and drive the valuation of unicorns up because they negotiate for provisions, for contractual provisions to protect them from future post IPO lower valuations, right? Which we call in the professional language, down rounds. If policymakers and regulators are going to let retail investors invest in private markets and privately held unicorns, despite this misalignment of incentives that I just told you about, right? Which again, this misalignment of incentives is between the current investors, then there is a need for more disclosure of information and policy design that affords more protections for retail investors.
0: Anat, are there any key takeaways or maybe open questions that you'd like our listeners to be thinking about from this conversation and paper, or maybe a preview of future papers that you might write in this area?
1: Uh, I think that first, and this is a question that I'm really dealing with in this paper, and I think I'm going to continue dealing with this because I do understand, I, I do understand why people want to invest in these private firms, right? And so, One of the key questions is, should regulators encourage retail investors to invest in private markets, which were previously limited to sophisticated and wealthy players, such as accredited individuals and institutions? I personally, and again, it's just my personal opinion, I feel that despite the best intentions of regulators, that the recent policy changes may fail to have the intended positive effect for investors, retirees and entrepreneurs. And I also think that they might even place some of these groups at risk. And again, you, you can find out more in the paper. I detailed the concerns, I take a look at the new policies and I argue that some of them fail to provide the protections it should not have been changed. I personally believe that some of these new policies create more problems than they resolve. And really The critical issue, the central issue to me is that policymakers and regulators, they must consider the rise in this alternative venture capital investors and the ways in which those investors affect the unicorn firm, its capital needs, the lack of disclosure of information, which affects the current and future investors. I think only if you take the rise of these alternative venture capital investors and their influence into account, then you can really have a better policy design and you can think about ways to mitigating some of these risks. And what this article does really well is it sheds light on the increasingly long, complex list of these new investors that I think regulators need to consider when making decisions on investor protection on the one hand and capital formation needs of private companies on the other. Because again, in the last few years, we're seeing these new non-traditional players making notable investments in large private technology firms, which again, historically these technology firms were dominated by venture capital investors. And I also have a few questions that I left open on purpose. And first is with regards to private equity. It's common knowledge that private equity funds hold assets that are very hard to value. Since valuations can be disputed, it is important to make sure that private equity fund managers will not have incentives to distort such reported valuations, especially if they need to use reports in order to make decisions on commitments for subsequent funds. So some of the hard questions that need to be considered are, first, what if underperforming private equity fund managers decide to inflate reported returns during times when fundraising takes place? Could non-accredited investors see through these manipulations? And I have a few more concerns and questions for further research in this area. So in the past, there have been several SEC inquiries that examine the possibility that private equity general partners overstated their portfolio net asset values. Now, in an attempt to attract investors to future funds, most of the assets that are held by private equity funds are private, and there is no liquid market for these assets. Therefore, traditionally, the investors who were known as limited partners, usually rely on the estimates of these NAVs in quarterly reports that are provided by the private equities general partners. So that is one concern. Another is with regards to fees. In the past, the SEC settled cases where private equity fund managers were failing to fully inform investors about their benefits from fees. For example, in 2015, right, there was a big settlement. So I think it's very important to design a policy that will take this into account and protect retail investors from illegal fee practices. With regards to liquidity concerns, I noted, and I'm going to say this again, unicorns are private firms, so their shares are non-liquid. And not only are they not liquid, many unicorns put restrictions on secondary trading. On top of that, there is controversy with regards to the aggressive valuation of these firms. If somebody wants to read more, there's a great people by Gornell and Strab Live on this. So policymakers should continue to review the secondary trading market with the goal of improving liquidity. I think again, if you're going to let people into these markets, you must improve liquidity. I'm going to talk about two more things. So one Is with regards to the suggestion, there there, there are all kinds of suggestions that were floating around and I cover them in the paper. One of them that I wanted to also quickly note is a suggestion to use public closed-end funds that will invest in private equity funds. I think there's a need for future research on this option because retail investors can perhaps benefit From sophisticated players, they can do the monitoring for them and negotiate for contractual terms with the private equity funds. However, and I will say this again, however, there are many unanswered questions that need to be answered regarding, again, fee structures, okay? And disclosure of fees and information regarding uninvested capital. There's a need for more research on the asymmetric information of these funds and for best practices in order to answer some of these questions. For example, should the SEC mandate a waiver of management fees on uninvested capital by close end funds? Should the SEC put restrictions or limits on underlying private equity fund management fees? Again, all these discussions were outside of the scope of these papers, but I would love it if people would continue to do research on this and write, and, and there's definitely a need in space in this field.
0: Our guest today has been Anat Alonbeck, Assistant Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University. We've discussed her article, Alternative Venture Capital, The New Unicorn Investors, which is forthcoming in the Tennessee Law Review. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Anat, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's really an honor and a privilege, and I love your podcast. I'm a huge fan.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.